Dr. John Aberth is a medieval historian, author, and professor, currently residing in Vermont. Uh, I hope I pronounced your name correctly this time with my Eurotrashy yeah. English. Uh, he received <laughs> his MA in medieval studies from the University of Leeds and his PhD in medieval history from the University of Cambridge, if I'm not mistaken. Dr. Eberth is the author of more than 10 books, is it, on medieval history? Uh, 10 books altogether. Yeah. 10 books, exactly 10 books focusing mostly on the Black Death of the late Middle Ages, which is also what we're going to be talking about today. I am super duper stoked to have you here. Dr. Aberth, welcome to Eurotrash. Thank you for having me. Before we go into the origins of the Black Death, could we set the stage a little bit? What does Europe look like in 1347? Um, I believe it was just before the plague strikes. Which are the major political forces that, that kind of control the continent? You know, there was the Hundred Years' War was uh, going on, had been going on for about 10 years between England and France. You know, in, in Central Europe, in uh, Germany, for example, the German Empire, um, this was, you know, politically fragmented. It was, um, you had a, a Holy Roman Emperor, but it was basically um, cities had a lot of autonomy. And also uh, the archbishops of Germany had a lot of aut autonomy in terms of their political control. And, um, you know, Eastern Europe, in uh, Poland, for example, the Baltic states, uh, these were kind of the frontiers of Europe at the time. Um, they had seen, for example, the tu Teutonic Crusade, um, uh, you know, the Crusade of the Teutonic Knights. Uh, that tried to pacify this region in the 13th century. Um, you know, Europe was coming off a, a big period of expansion uh, prior to this. Um, population had been growing steadily, uh, you know, throughout the uh, 12th and 13th centuries. Um, you know, the weather was very good at this time. This is known as the warm, uh, warm anomaly or the, the warm climate of the time. Uh, so growing seasons were longer. Um, so, you know, things were pretty good. Uh, Europe was pretty prosperous up until this time. But about 1300, um, you know, most scholars would agree that um, things start to turn or to change. Um, uh, Europe enters what is called a little ice age where the weather gets colder and much wetter. Um, and, and so, you know, growing seasons begin to contract. Population uh, at least steadies off. It doesn't grow uh, anymore. Uh, you know, uh, scholars call you know talk about a deadlock or a stalemate in between the population and the capacity to feed that population. So Europe had pretty much reached the, its limit or capacity in terms of how much people it could support by medieval. So that's the beginning of the 14th century, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, population was at a stalemate. Um, you know, Europe was uh, beginning to, um, you know, enter the limit of what it could support and how, how much it could grow. Um, and the, the plague, of course, took care of that. If we stay here a little bit before the plague comes at this moment in 1347, um, and if we descend a little bit, what does life look like for the common folk at that time? And, and also, what is the average life expectancy if you survived infancy? Um, well, before the Black Death, um, you know, this, this has actually been measured 
through obituary list in uh, for three English monasteries during the 15th century. And they found that at the beginning of the 15th century, for example, life expectancy was about 30 years of age if you were 25 years old. In other words, you could expect to at least live five more years. And, you know, your life expectancy was about 30 years old uh, at, at that time. But then by the so end that's, of the that's 15th... after you, I mean, if you survived like infancy, you could expect yeah. to live about a 30 yeah. years. And that was it. Right. Well, uh, you have to remember there was very high uh, infant mortality rate. So that skews a lot of the, uh, a lot of the figures. But um, if, if you survived childhood... You know, the average was about 30 years old, but okay. you know, there was a lot of variability within that, of course. Yeah, but what was what was the most likely going to kill you in the 14th century, like Europe? Was it a tooth abscess, a childbirth, if you're a woman, maybe a violent bout of diarrhea, uh, or is it like a violence and war? <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to say, um, but certainly there was always a background of disease. In medieval society, you had you know any number of ills that could strike you down, and uh, you could have chronic ills that you mentioned, such as a toothache, for example, or a wound uh, that simply never healed properly. Um, uh, but you know you, there was also certainly um, you know diseases before the plague arrived uh, that could that could kill you. There you know wars. Um, yeah, there was always local wars or national wars that took their toll. But, you know, those wars didn't really affect the general population so much unless they were taking place where the war was, was located. Um, you know, for example, in France, the, the scene of the Hundred Years' War, yeah, there could be a lot of devastation where the war occurred. You know, there were there were something called chevauchées or armed raids that the English conducted in the French countryside, and that could cause starvation and uh, you know hunger and famine and so forth. So that could have an impact, but that was local. Uh, and in terms of general society, um, you know, you you had you did have an array of diseases, but nothing that affected uh, wide swaths of the population, like the Black Death. The Black Death was really, you know, the the first pandemic in medieval society. I would say, um, you know, the, the the first first pandemic of plague occurred in the early Middle Ages, beginning in five forty one. So you said that there were some other diseases that could kill you before the Black Plague. What what sure. were some of those? You know, dysentery. Um, you know, that so diarrhea, Henry right? V. Yeah, just the flux of the bowels, as they no, call don't it. want to be too graphic, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, you know, you you could have uh, you know any, any you know tumors or you know I, I guess there there might be something akin to influenza or you know there there might be respiratory diseases. D doctors in their case studies, you can you can read about various kinds of ills that would affect individual patients. But again, there was nothing that was so general to the population like the Black Death. I mean, something that affected all ages and conditions of people, like the Black Death did. But, you know, you had individual diseases. You had something called gout, which, you know, uh, was a swelling of the foot, basically. Um, you know, so you had individual diseases um, that could afflict people, but nothing that was so general to the population, I would say. 
I saw a somewhat related meme recently. I want to get your opinion on it. Um, let, let me quickly look it up on my phone. I thought it was quite amusing. Uh, I think I saved it. Yeah, here it is. It's a drawing of a couple of medieval peasants working in the fields. And the text says, Medieval peasants worked only about 150 days in a year. The church believed it was more important to keep them happy with frequent mandatory holidays. You have less holidays than a medieval peasant. <laughs> could we say that life was, if that's true, could we say that life was at least in some ways kind of more chill back then? If we forget the disease and war, or is that not accurate? Well, it's difficult to measure how how uh, much or how often people worked during the Middle Ages. They, uh, you know, the, a lot of it was seasonal work. You know, for example, during harvest time, which was during the summer, late summer and early autumn, you know, people worked very hard to bring in the crops. Um, and then the rest of the year, they would not have that urgency. So a lot of the work was, especially agricultural work, which the peasants performed, was seasonal work. So you have to remember that it followed the seasons of the year, um, you know, which is, you know, quite different from a lot of the work that we perform in the modern age. Um, so it's very much tied to the land, tied to the rhythms of the season. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, it's sort of hard to compare it because... You know, people could work quite intensely, quite hard at certain seasons of the year and then not work not so hard. And okay. certainly they had a, a lot of religious holidays, of course. But I think it is estimated that, um, you know, one of the interesting things that came out of the Black Death is that there was so fewer people available for work. This is called the supply side shock. There wasn't that supply of labor. So their, their labor became much more valuable. So they were able to work less than before because they could earn the same amount in less time because the wages were that, were that much higher as a result of the Black Death. So they, you know, they, they actually could, um, you know, perhaps work half the year. Kind of leverage a little bit their position then. Yeah, that's right. They could work okay. half the year, yeah. which is what the cartoon is saying. Okay. They could work, <laughs> yeah. they could, you know, those 360 days of the year, they could work half the year and earn yeah. okay. as much as if they work like 260 days so, of the year. So this meme kind of is, uh, you know, uh, connected to the a after the, the Black Plague. Already that's really post-plague. Kind of. um, okay, yeah, post-plague. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, okay, so but if we, go, if we go a little bit back to the origins, um, do we know anything about how the plague entered first entered Europe. I remember reading a while back that there was a siege somewhere in the Middle East during which the Golden Horde was throwing yeah. infected corpses over the city walls where a couple of Genoan merchants were trading at the time. And that when they escaped, they brought the disease to Italy. Is that a likely scenario? Because it sounds like a movie a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a famous story from the chronicle of Gabriel de Musis, a, a chronicler from Piacenza in Italy. And he, he tells a story of how the Mongols were besieging the town of Kaffa. There was a war between the Genoans, uh, the, the city of Genoa, which was a, a maritime power that controlled the city of Kaffa, uh, which is now Theodosia, on the north coast of the Black Sea. And um, the, uh, 
the Mongols were besieging the, the Genoans and then they got the plague. So they decided to catapult their plague corpses into the town to give the disease to the, the besieged, to the defenders. And they apparently got the plague when, you know, they, they began dumping these bodies into the water and it poisoned the water and that gave them the disease. But anyway, uh, that's an apocryphal story. Probably th- that may have happened. But, um, you know, I've actually uh, talked about that in my book. Uh, you know, the belief in the Middle Ages was that plague was spread by stenches or foul odors. So they would wait until the body had decomposed quite a bit, not too much that it would simply fall apart when it was, uh, you know, launched from the catapult, but enough so that it really stank. Uh, so those corpses probably were, you know, a couple of weeks old. And uh, therefore, um, you know, the, the, the idea was that it was not, uh, you know, it was not just, uh, you know, launching these corpses when they had died. They had to smell bad. And that's when they could communicate the disease. But uh, in terms of the reality, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is that this, the, um, this Crimean region was a big grain-producing region. The main export was grain that Genoa was bringing back to Europe. And grain is a favorite food for rats. And, you know, the, the, the grain shipments would have been infested with rats. And rats are one of the main carriers of, of the bubonic plague. So in bringing back these grain cargoes to Europe, they would have brought back the plague through the infested rats. And that's that's probably how the plague was communicated to the Genoans first, because uh, the town, the port of Kaffa was a main port, a trading port at the end of the Silk Road that went through the northern part of Central Asia. And the, the disease spread along this trade route and then came to the port of Kaffa, and then the Genoans brought the disease back to Europe in their grain shipments. And by the way, you know, this is still a big grain producing region. Ukraine, for example, is a big supplier of grain, as we all know from the the war that's going on there. Um, And and that's being disrupted by the war uh, with Russia. And that was also true in the Middle Ages as well. In 1346, when the siege took place, there was no no shipments going back. Uh, And that ended in 1347 when peace was concluded between the Mongols and the Genoans, and that's when they brought the plague back. But um, how how come the the Mongols didn't get infected then? Were they already immune or... No, they were infected. There's some grain of truth to this story. Yeah, the story is that the Mongols were dying from the plague and they, they catapulted their dead comrades into the town to try to give it to the Genoans. So, yeah, the Mongols got the plague as bad, if not worse, uh, than the Christians, according to this account. Yeah, and there are, there are also uh, Islamic accounts from the Middle East that indicate that the Middle East was hit just as hard as uh, Europe, although we don't have as much uh, archival material. Is there a currently accepted theory of where the plague actually came from and, and how did it jump to patient zero? Do we have any idea how that happened? Well, I should say there are three pandemics of plague. The plague in the late Middle Ages was the so-called second pandemic. The first pandemic occurred beginning in 541 in Constantinople. Uh, And this was in the early Middle Ages. And 
it eventually died out by 750 and then plague basically disappeared for whatever reason for centuries, for six centuries until it reappeared in 1347, 1348 in Europe. Um, but in terms of, you know, the uh, actual origins, uh, it is thought plague originated in Central Asia, uh, specifically in the Quinhai Tibet Plateau, which is a modern day Tibet in Western China. Um, we know this because they have done um, some genetic mapping of modern isolates of, of Yersinia pestis, which is the bacteria that causes the disease. They've been able to map the DNA of Yersinia pestis. And they found that this area, this region, has the, uh, has the most genetic diversity uh, of all modern isolates of Yersinia pestis DNA. So for that reason, it is thought to have been the oldest region where Yersinia pestis emerged and then spread from there. Uh, so it is thought that in the, you know, prior to 1347, uh, there had been a so-called genetic big bang that occurred in 1268, where, um, you know, Yersinia pestis mutated into different strains and then uh, spread from there. And by the way, this is around the same time as Marco Polo was making his journey to um, the Great Khan in 1271. So this is the time when the Mongols were establishing, reestablishing the Silk Road that had died out in Roman times. So this is how the plague was able to spread from the Central Asia to Europe uh, along the uh, route of the Silk Road that the Mongols had reestablished, uh, you know, in, from the second half of the 13th century and then it finally reached Europe. Um, and it's thought that it was, you know, spreading, uh, you know, from that time through the first half of the 14th century. Um, and, uh, you know, it was thought that one Arabic chronicler, one Middle Eastern chronicler, Ibn al-Wardi talks about how the plague was known to be present in this region, in China and Central Asia, uh, for 15 years prior to 1347-48. So during the 1330s, at least, it was plague had broken out in the east and it was now spreading west. So that's basically how it, it spread from east to west. Do we have any records from Chinese sources? Yes, we have annals or, uh, you know, brief registers of yearly events. Uh, and they talk about pestilences or or uh, diseases that occur in the 1330s and 40s in some Chinese provinces, um, but they're not very specific about what the what these diseases were. So it's hard to uh, to know exactly what was going on there. Um, but it does seem like um, the disease was present in China during the 1330s and 40s. Um, but you know, probably spread. Probably the plague originated in Central Asia in that Tibetan Western China region and spread to China from there and also spread to the, to the West at the same time. Uh -huh, so it went into like two directions, East and West. Yeah. It basically time. radiated out from that, from that Quinhai Tibet plateau. Mm -hmm. So once the plague starts spreading through continental Europe and people begin dying on an unprecedented scale, even for medieval times, right? How are most of them 
reacting to all of this? Um, do they actually believe that this is some kind of an apocalypse or was most of the populace like, okay, this is pretty horrible, but it's not completely out of the scope of the usual repertoire of horrible things that, you know, we already know. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, most of the chronicles that we have talk about it as an unprecedented event. I mean, uh, the famous uh, Italian author Petrarch, Francesco Petrarch, talks about how, um, you know, no other generation of humans had to endure what he was enduring or what his generation was enduring. You know, when was when were we made to feel the lash as we are feeling the lash of God uh, from this disease? So um, uh, I think there was little memory of that first pandemic that I mentioned uh, from the early Middle Ages. Um, there, there maybe was some awareness among certain authors, um, but, um, you know, there was, it was seen as unprecedented, um, you know, that never been, never seen before this much mortality. Uh, you have to remember that our best estimates from, you know, archival documents, you know, usually tax records, for example, our best estimates is that 50 to 60% of the population of Europe died. So, you know, every other person was dying of this, of this disease on average. So I mean, did you say, uh, did you say 60 to 70%? 50 to 60%. 50 yeah. to 60%. Okay. So right. more you, than you're a talking half. To, you're talking about 50 million people is estimated uh, being wiped out in that those first two years in 1347, 13 to 1350 being wiped out in a few years. So yeah, it made a huge impact upon people. Uh, you know, the, a typical explanation was that this plague came from God as a retribution for human wickedness and sin. And that therefore, you know, humans had somehow brought this upon themselves. Um, you know, was this the end of the world? You know, perhaps some people believe so, but, um, you know, the, the notions of the apocalypse were perhaps different than what we have today. Uh, the apocalypse would indicate a new era that would begin. And maybe, you know, some people surely thought, thought that was the case. But yeah, it certainly seemed to be unheard of, uh, unread of before in, in any other uh, chronicle or in the Bible. And, and therefore, um, you know, this was something new and, and something unprecedented um, that, you know, the, this generation was, was experiencing. So, yeah, certainly a sense that it was, that it was, uh, you know, an awesome, you know, <clears throat> once in a, a lifetime or, you know, certainly once in a generation's event that was taking place. I remember when we covered the, the Black Death in high school, um, it was all quite dry, something along the lines of, you know, all righty, kids, the Black Death came. Killed millions of people, lasted a couple of years. People had a really, really bad time for a while. But after it burned out, everything kind of went back to normal. So um, yeah, that's wrong, this kind of history, but... yeah, that can't be reimagined through some great historical person like a duke winning a, a famous battle or, or yeah. a queen outsmarting her enemies uh, on the diplomatic stage is usually not given its proper due when conveyed. Do we have any diaries or chronicles written by, let's say, a blacksmith or a midwife or some sort of a commoner painting the picture of everyday life during the plague? No, not, not at this time. No, but I, I should also mention that modern uh, scholars 
concur that this, they, they call this the Black Death, the greatest natural disaster in the history of humankind. So they also, from the perspective, uh, you know, from the perspective of modern times, they also concur that this was an unprecedented event um, based on their research. But as far as what you're asking, was there, uh, you know, a, a personal record of the plague? Uh, we don't really have that. What we what we do have is records of whole families being wiped out, uh, that no one survives. Um, you know that um, pretty much the the father, the mother, the sons, the daughters they they all die in, in some cases in some towns. Uh, so we have records of that of its impact upon families and how it could simply wipe out and devastate a whole family or even a whole village. Um, there are some cases of 100% mortality being recorded. Yeah. You can imagine that there was, um, you know, uh, an impact. I think the I think the most important, um, you know, personal, uh, you know, uh, personal reckoning with the with the plague was about what to do with sick family members. If you can imagine someone gets sick in your family and you believe this is a contagious disease, although, you know, we know it's spread by rats and fleas, not mainly human to human. But, you know, if you believe this is a contagious disease, what do you do with those family members? Do you flee and abandon them or do you stay and take care of them and possibly get the plague yourself? And that was the main you know, a social family dilemma, I think, that was faced by most people at the time of the Black Death. What to do uh, when a member of the family gets sick and how do you respond? And it's a question that, you know, was also uh, asked by, you know, uh, during the COVID pandemic today, because, you know, people face the same dilemma. What if someone gets COVID and how do you respond? But what kind of records then do we have? Um, you already mentioned like tax tax records, right? Yeah. W- what else is there? Um, well, we have um, various records that can give us an idea of how many people were actually dying from the Black Death. So those include, you know, manorial records, for example, in England. England has uh, the most records that survive. And these include, um, you know, over 100 manorial accounts. Um, these are basically records of the manor court and they're mainly recording um, who is paying their taxes or, you know, uh, who uh, who is actually sometimes actually record who has actually died of the disease. Uh, we also have Episcopal records. These are the records of the bishops of England. Um, and these record how many priests were dying during the plague because they record the vacancy that occurred in every church. Um, uh, we have... Uh, Sometimes letters that were written, uh, for example, I mentioned Petrarch. He wrote a letter uh, to his friend, Louis Sanctus, uh, talking about the disease. So that's a, a more personal record uh, about the disease. And uh, there's also a letter from Coluccio Salutati, who was uh, chancellor of Florence, which is also where Petrarch came from, of course. And um, he, he talks about you know how people are fleeing the plague how people are fleeing the city of Florence and what to do about that situation because he wants people to stay and be a part of civic life. So we, we do have some personal letters that talk about the disease. 
Um, and, and we also have, uh, you know, a lot of chronicle accounts, a lot of chronicles that talk about the disease and its impact. Um, so we have various chronicles uh, written usually by clerical authors, um, you know, people, members of the church who are the most literate members of society. And those give us accounts of the disease as well. It's a little bit ironic that you mentioned that uh, the tax records were kind of pristine, that even at the times of this uh, cataclysmic event, the tax office is still standing. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing to, uh, even during the time of the, of the, you know, when the disease was wiping out so many people, you still get regular entries, although, um, you know, the handwriting becomes, you know, a little a little more regular or, uh, you know, but they're, they're still making their entries. They're still holding the manor court. Uh, they're still trying to run the business, uh, run the daily business of life. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's impressive how the administration continues to carry on even when you have half the people dying. Yeah. I want to ask something related to that. So we have a situation suddenly where in some places you mentioned, uh, more than half of the population dies, where whole communities are getting wiped out. Do people still generally respect the social order when it seems that the world around them has crumbled? Or do we have scenes of complete mayhem, you know, on the streets and, and, and you know, decadent stuff going on in every tavern? Uh, I think we, we, we have the general sense that um, life carries on. Um, you know, in the uh, in the Bishop of Winchester's estate, you uh, a recent study has found that the average mortality was seventy six percent. So these, you know, any, any new um, any new any new analyses we have only pushes the death rate higher. But even so, uh, the Bishop of Winchester still carries on his administration, and life continues to go on, and he he's still um, collecting rents. From his peasants, so um, you know things don't collapse right away. Um, you know the, the uh, there was a, a huge impact, as I said, made by that first outbreak of the Black Death in 1347 to 1350. Uh, but then, you know, Europe re- seems to recover somewhat from that. The problem is, which goes back to the point you made, it was not simply one outbreak. Uh, plague kept coming back. Uh, about once a decade throughout the second half of the 14th and throughout the 15th centuries. So, um, you know, the plague doesn't end in the mid-14th century. It it reoccurs uh, throughout the rest of the Middle Ages and on into the early modern period. Plague really only dies out in the second half of the 17th and, uh, you know, last last gasp in the 18th century. So, uh, so people you know, learn never... how to live with it eventually. Right. I mean, plague never goes away. And it is, it was traditionally thought that plague was of lower virulence in these later outbreaks. And the, the, this latest research, for example, in the Netherlands has found that actually later plagues could be just as deadly as the first outbreak. For example, in, in, in Holland, it was found that the plague of 1400, 1401 was called the great mortality because its mortality was greater than in the mid 14th century. So um, it it could still, it could come back with, you know, just as high virulence or even greater virulence uh, throughout the rest of the Middle Ages. 
you mentioned Chronicles that you know from that time from from yeah. 13 for, uh, 47 to I think you said uh, 1350 right yeah um, one of them is, is what you mentioned Gabriel de Messis's account mm-hmm. of the Mongols catapulting their plague yeah, corpses yeah. into the town do, do they describe how people are behaving at all in you know during this first brutal wave of the plague yes they talk about that um, you know perhaps the most famous of course is Giovanni Boccaccio's introduction to the Decameron, his collection of a hundred stories, and he, he, his introduction, he talks about what was happening in the city of Florence, and his his most famous, um, you know, account is how, you know, brothers abandoned brothers, sisters abandoned sisters, parents even abandoned their children, um, you know, that people were only concerned for themselves. And basically, the community begins to fall apart, which I think goes back to what you were saying. Uh, in some sense, uh, people, he, he complains that people were fleeing the plague, leaving Florence, and therefore, uh, in his mind, they were leaving uh, Florence in the hands of the worst elements of society, of the lowest, of the lowest order. Um, you know, all, because the, the people who could flee were, of course, the wealthiest members of society. Uh, people who had estates in the country to flee to. No surprises there. (laughs) Right. Ordinary people had nowhere to go. I mean, you know, they didn't have nice country estates, nice country homes. Uh, You know, so, um, you know, these, the the wealthiest people, the leaders of civic society were fleeing and leaving behind the detritus of society. And that was his basic complaint was that... um, you know, this was, uh, you know, a collapse of uh, moral obligations. And Coluccio Salutati makes the same point later in 1382 in response to another plague epidemic that hits Florence in 1381. So this is a recurring theme that uh, people would abandon their commitments to their family, to society, to their city, um, and, um, you know, trying to save themselves and leaving, uh, you know, leaving everyone else behind. What is interesting is to compare the response in Islam in the Middle East, which had a different set of cultural assumptions. Um, In Islam, uh, there was supposedly a moral obligation to stay, uh, to not leave a plague-infested region or to enter a plague-infested region. And there was also belief that plague was a mercy and martyrdom for believers, that if you died of plague, you would automatically go to heaven as if you died in jihad. Uh, so um, the idea here was that people had more of a cultural obligation to tend to members of the community, uh, to the ummah or the community of Islam. Um, whether that it was actually true in reality, I mean, it's hard to tell, but you know, there was different cultural assumptions going on here. If we move on to medical responses, um, when it comes to medieval doctors, our usual, I mean, usually our first association is of leeches and and relics and such. Uh, What was the most commonly prescribed treatment for the plague and and how did the doctors explain the mechanism of the infection at that time? I think you mentioned something about corrupt air or something. Right. I mean, actually, this is the focus of much of my research uh, on the plague treatises, which were medical treatises written by plague doctors in response to the Black Death. 
But what I found was that doctors actually did come up with something new as an explanation of plague. And this is what I call the poison thesis, the idea that plague was a poison entering the body. And this poison was, um, you know, uh, of a whole substance that meant that it was, it didn't matter what your humoral makeup or complexion was. It would affect everyone regardless of individual complexion or makeup. And this seemed to, you know, mirror uh, how the plague was, you know, indiscriminate in its impact upon society, how it was affecting everyone, young or old, high or low degree. And, you know, also how the plague was was simply ferocious and, um, you know, sickened people so quickly and was so deadly. Um, so this poison could enter a body and then once inside the body, it multiplied, it could multiply inside the body and went straight to the heart and killed it. And that's why plague was so deadly in that explanation. And that's why also plague affected everyone, regardless of their individual makeup. Um, and it also, by the way, sort of foreshadows the germ theory of disease because, you know, germs are a foreign substance that enter the body and they're actually called toxins and that multiply once inside the body. And, and kill it quickly. And the best way to combat poison was through drugs. And therefore, a common prescription of medieval doctors was theriac, which is a, a compound going all the way back to King Mithridates of Pontus in Egypt, and in, 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 rather in, in Greece, who um, allegedly ingested poison and became immune to poison. So this was a compound consisted of about 60 elements that could neutralize poison once it entered the body. So, and and uh, what, what did that actually do to somebody's, you know, Didn't really do anything that? in terms of, you know, modern, modern sense of killing the bacteria, but it was believed it could counteract poison. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, perhaps the most common treatment uh, that you, that you uh, mentioned is uh, bleeding the body, um, that, you know, you, you uh, open a vein in the arm, for example, or usually, you know, very often on the hand, and you bleed the patient. And um, one medieval doctor, this is Ibn Hatima of Almeria in Spain, uh, who was a physician in the uh, Moor city of Almeria in Spain, controlled by the Muslims. He said that people would give an enormous amount of blood uh, uh, during the plague, uh, you know, equivalent to the entire amount of blood in the human body. Um, but this is probably during the whole reign of plague um, from June 1348 to February 1349. So over the course of many months, but, you know, people, um, you know, gave, uh, you know, according to him, uh, as much blood as there was in a, in a 150 pound person. Uh, so, you know, that's, it was an incredible amount of blood that people would give, you know, a pint, a pint and a half at a time um, until they fainted. Uh, okay, so that probably just weakened you for when you actually got the disease and then you died even sooner, right? Possibly. Or... It could make you anemic um, okay. if you let too much blood. Uh, but, you know, other doctors advised against bleeding to that extent uh, to the point that it weakened patients. But, you know... Uh, the belief was that this was letting out the plague poison or was letting out the bad humors of the body. Um, but uh, obviously, 
um, you know, that wasn't an effective treatment. Um, so, um, and, and if you think about the instruments that they were using, how they didn't have particularly good hygiene, it actually may have infected people if you're using the same instruments to bleed several people. Okay. Wow. So infection and sepsis was probably called Yeah, right. Well. Right. Um, did they figure uh, out the common, benefits? I, I was just going to say another common treatment was that if you get buboes, which is the most common symptom, a symptom of bubonic plague, you get swellings in the groin, which was most frequent, or in the armpits or in the neck region. Uh, the neck was the least frequent place to get buboes. But if you got a swelling, doctors would also cut open that, that, that bubo or that swelling to try to release the poison that was believed to be contained there. And, uh, and one doctor, uh, this is Blasius of Barcelona, who was physician to King Martin of Aragon in Spain. He, he got plague himself. He got a swelling on the right side of his groin. And the next day, another swelling on the left side of his groin. And he decided to evacuate that swelling on the right side. And it was, he had his teacher cut it open. And he says that his fever was uh, immediately relieved upon cutting open the boil. And um, so he, according to him, it worked because uh, the plague poison, which was nowhere in the body except in the swelling, he said, was immediately relieved. Um, but, you know, in modern terms, um, during the so-called third pandemic of plague at the turn of the 20th century in India, uh, British doctors found that cutting open the, the swelling was counterproductive. You know, it very often resulted in infection and sepsis, as you mentioned. Um, you know, uh, it was it actually did did more harm than good in terms of trying to alleviate uh, the symptoms of plague. It was best left to its own devices to uh, sometimes these spoils would separate or burst open on their own, usually in the second week of symptoms. Once you got the plague, what were your chances? People could recover naturally from bubonic plague. Um, that was the most common form of plague. But it is estimated that, you know, uh, between 10 to 40% of people could survive bubonic plague on their own. Um, you know, especially if you had a separation of the boil, for example, that was a sign that the, the plague was leaving your body. So, you know, if the bacteria was contained within the lymph glands, which is your part of your body's immune system, defense system, you know, you could survive. Uh, but, you know, uh, if the plague migrated into the bloodstream, then you could get, you get septicemia and then you were sure to die. Um, there were two other forms of plague. Pneumonic plague was 100% fatal and so was septicemic plague, which was a direct invasion of bacteria into the bloodstream. And that was also 100% fatal. So uh, you didn't have any chance there. Not to be too gruesome, but once you got the plague, how did, probably not the best way to go, right? What happened? How, how did people actually die then? And how long did it last? Well, in the most common form, uh, bubonic plague, it, it took about a week for the bacteria to multiply inside the body. So what were the first symptoms, for example? So the, 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 the first immediate symptoms were a high fever, usually um, headaches, chills, um, basically uh, symptoms very similar to uh, 
to flu, for example. Um, you know, you, you had a response to this invasion of a microorganism in your body. So high fever, uh, sweats, chills, headache, those were the common symptoms reported by doctors uh, of people when they first got the disease. And septicemic plague, you could, you could die very quickly. Um, you know, a, a modern outbreak of septicemic plague occurred in uh, Colombo in modern-day Sri Lanka in the turn of the 20th century, and it was said that you got fever in the morning and death in the evening. Oh, wow. uh, you typically, people typically died in Oof. 15 hours, so that was very quick. Uh, in pneumonic plague, um, you you would die within two days uh, of being infected, and um, you know that was spread by airborne droplets. So it, was, it could be spread person to person. Although I should mention that you know plague bacteria are a thousand times larger than viruses, so it's much less infectious than the COVID, uh, you know, than the coronavirus, for example. But you you died in two days, and you usually spit up blood. You coughed up blood, a lot of blood, because the, there's there's bleeding going on in the lungs, um, and so you you die gasping for air in two days, and that's a horrible way to die. The most common was bubonic form, uh, bubonic plague, and you typically died in three to five days of that uh, of getting symptoms. You you got the swellings or the boils, typically in the groin. Um, uh, you know, three quarters of the time, two thirds, two thirds or three quarters of the time, you get boils on the groin. Uh, about a quarter of the time, you get a swelling in the in the uh, armpit, rather, and then about ten percent of the time, you get a swelling in the neck. Ten uh, percent of cases, but um, in that case, you you also the the swelling was very painful. The boil was very painful. You can imagine cutting open and cutting into one would be very painful. Um, so that was, you know, that was a horrible way to die too. And, and, and perhaps, uh, a large part of the horror of, of, of this, of dying from this disease was that if you were abandoned during the disease, if, if your family left you alone to die, you know, you have no food or water. Uh, so you also die, you know, you could die of hunger or thirst, um, you know, perhaps before you died of the, of the symptoms of the disease. But, you know, you, you would basically die in three to five days. And, uh, you know, these swellings were very painful. And, you know, that was, uh, that was a horrible way to go as well. In this bubonic variant, what killed you in the end then? Was it the fever, the infection itself? Typically, um, in 35 to 40% of cases, the bacteria would break out of the lymph nodes and enter the bloodstream of the body. And then you basically it would invade every organ. So you have massive organ failure mm -hmm. taking place in every part of the body. Your heart, of course, would fail, liver, lungs, you know. So you have massive organ failure and you just succumb to that. Um, uh, or, you know, you might, you might die of, uh, of, of gangrene or, or sepsis uh, if the swelling, the bubo burst open and it got infected and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, it's not a nice way to die at all. None of the variants sound particularly <laughs> no. pleasant, no, I have to say. Uh, plague bacteria has been called one of the deadliest bacteria known to man. So, yeah, it's, you know, it causes, um, you know, very, very severe symptoms that kill pretty quickly. 
if we stay uh, with medieval doctors just for a second longer, um, yeah. did they figure out the benefits of, of quarantine back then? Yes. I mean, they did try that from the very beginning, in fact, uh, of the Black Death from, uh, you know, beginning in 1348. Cities like Pistoria in Italy and, and Florence in Italy, uh, they did try to, um, you know, quarantine as, you know, the, the term quarantine comes from the 15th century, from Corento, 40 days of quarantine, uh, which was first implemented by Ragusa uh, in the in the city, modern-day city of Dubrovnik in, uh, Croatia. Uh, in the Slavic lands. And, yeah. uh, and then also Venice in Italy also was among the first to do that as well. But that, that was in the 15th century. But, you know, even before then, from the very first outbreak, cities would try to isolate themselves. Basically, um, we have actual ordinances surviving from Pistoria, which specify that no one was to come in or out of the city. Um, you know, no one was to bring any goods from any, anywhere else into the city. No one was to leave the city. Um, so that was an attempt to effectively quarantine. Um, but, um, you know, it basically didn't really work. Part of the reason why it didn't work was because almost everyone needed grain. They needed food to eat and to live. So, you know, you weren't, you know, the, you couldn't have an embargo on grain. Um, you know, that, um, you know, that had to still come into the city to feed people. And of course, so, they didn't know that you know with yeah. each shipment from Central Asia, they're potentially bringing in more, more infected. I mean, more well, exactly. Rats you know, carry. the the shipment of grain contained the rats too that were yeah. infected, and the and the fleas, the fleas living on the rats, were also infected. In fact, the fleas could live independently of rats on grain. So you're importing that, and you're importing plague. Really, I think the difference comes when plague begins to die out is when, you know, this kind of quarantine becomes more effective. And the reason why it becomes more effective is because of what are called communication networks, networks of communication that emerged uh, among the, the cities of Europe. They began to, to communicate with each other about where the plague was coming from. Uh, you know, where did the plague originate? Where was it spreading to? And how, you know, you know, therefore, they could avoid any shipments from that specific place and still get needed shipments from other places that were not infected. So that made a difference because then you could target your quarantine uh, to where infection was actually coming from and, and still survive. And in that way, they were able to shut down, um, you know, the pandemics before they were spreading before they could spread from city to city, you see. So that, that became much more effective form of quarantine when cities began talking to each other and, and countries began communicating with each other in terms of where the, how, you know, where the plague was coming from, where it was spreading to, and so forth. And that's exactly what we do today with the World Health Organization. You know, we, we try to determine where disease starts you know, the coronavirus is a perfect example. I mean, part of the problem was that China didn't communicate, uh, you know, from the very beginning that there was this, um, you know, the disease emerging. We, we found out later. But, you know, then we, tr we tried to gain more information. 
uh, from China. And that's the key is to get information. Information is power, of course. And it can help you in terms of determining where the plague, where the disease is and where, where it's coming from and how to, to best target your quarantine measures to avoid it. And these sort of networks uh, were established immediately during this first wave already? No. In, in, no, okay, later on. No, that's the point. I mean, these networks only emerged later yeah. through play controls that were being implemented gradually over the centuries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. You know, a lot of these play controls really only come into being in the 15th century in places like Florence. Florence was an innovator in, in terms of play controls where, you, you know, you, you automatically establish a certain, um, you know, measures in response to disease. This could include isolation of victims, um, disinfection of, of houses where plague occurred and so forth. Um, but, you know, this, this is something that happens gradually. Um, and development of communications is something that goes hand in hand with the emergence of, of centralized monarchies that is occurring throughout Europe as we head into the early modern era. So, um, you know, this is something that really only emerges in the early modern period uh, where these plague controls become fully effective, I believe. Uh, according to the research of Paul Slack, you know, that this is where, you know, plague controls become effective and you can actually correlate them with the decline of epidemics. One of the most striking phenomena during the plague, and there are many, um, that to us now seem something out of a horror movie are the so-called flagellants. I hope I said that correctly. Right, Reli- yeah. Reli- mm-hmm. Religious zealots forming processions, whipping themselves in the streets. How did this movement, for lack of a better word, uh, come about and what was their aim? Well, uh, the flagellants are really misunderstood, I believe. And there, there has been some new research or new evidence that has emerged in the past few decades about the flagellants. That's really quite interesting. Uh, you know, the typical popular image of the flagellants is, as you mentioned, a, a radical, you know, crazed group um, that talked about the end of the world and that whipped themselves into a frenzy and inspired uh, frenzied response from onlookers, um, you know, very emotional and uh, out of control. The reality is that flagellants were very choreographed. They were very, very organized, and they were very, um, they were trying to elicit a specific response. I, I mean, these were not, <laughs> these were not just ragtag bunch of, of people going around whipping themselves. This is very regimented, very controlled, um, you know, very orderly, in fact. And what, one of the reasons why I say that is that we have a, a new piece of evidence that has emerged, first emerged in 2003, which is called a flagellant scroll. This, this comes from the Low Countries. Uh, and this was a scroll that's only three and a half inches wide, three and a half inches wide and eight feet long. And it was, consists of four strips of parchment sewn together and it was tightly rolled up into a ball meant to be carried in a pouch. I'm sorry. I, can- I, I think in centimeters and meters and stuff like I'm, I'm okay. My American, <laughs> you know, system is a bit hazy. So, you know, three and a half inches. I don't know how that, how that translates into centimeters, but okay. you know, it's, it's you like, said three and a half know, inches. 
three. Yeah. So uh, you're talking about a a very narrow strip of parchment here. All right. So that's eight point eight nine centimeters. All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We got. So it. you know, uh, this was designed to be uh, portable to be carried from town to town. So. The, a flatulent company would go from town to town and they would take out the scroll and read from it. And, and they had the whole liturgy or ritual on that scroll. So this scroll was, was, you know, this liturgy, this ritual was very choreographed, was very regimented. Okay. So when they came to town, they would procession to town two by two. And then they would form a circle in the market square of the city that they came to. And, um, then at a certain um, uh, at a certain point in the, they would sing a song, uh, you know, a, a, a song about the, the the passion or the crucifixion of Christ, and the flatulents saw themselves as imitating that passion. They they were shedding their blood just as Christ has shed His blood for all humankind. And the idea is that by whipping themselves, by shedding their blood, they would appease God's wrath and save everyone from the Black Death. And that's why flagellants were very popular and welcomed in town after town. Because they, 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 they arrived... actually they had a little performance that they made. Exactly. And performed and... This is a performance, a, a ritual performance that was performed two to three times a day for 33 and a half days. That's how long the flagellants pledged to be part of a company, for 33 and a half days. By legend, that was how long Christ lived, 33 and a half years. So that's why 33 and a half days. But they were so actually they, whipping themselves, right? At certain points, they were. They weren't whipping themselves all the time, but only at certain points in the song. When these, when it said, for example, now flail, now flail yourself for Christ's honor, they would whip themselves, okay? But it was only it was for not very long, and it was only at certain points in the ritual. And then they would fall flat on the ground in the shape of a cross. Uh, you know, now, uh, you know, you know, now that there would be a point at the song uh, where we, we, we all crosswise fall, they would say. And they all fell down in the shape of a cross, prostrate themselves on the ground, and then rise up and whip themselves again. And they did that three times. Uh, so that was, it was very organized, very ritualized. Uh, so it was not spontaneous at all. So and, more like uh, a dance, the, like a highly choreographed dance routine than exactly. a spontaneous mob whipping exactly. themselves. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's the evidence of this flagellant scroll. They actually had notation when they had to fall to the ground in the shape of crosses marked on the scroll. So, um, you know, the evidence indicates that this was very, very choreographed, very organized. And the whole idea behind it was to... Um, you know, by this performance to make the plague go away or prevent it from coming. I mean, usually the evidence is that flagellants came to towns before the plague arrived. So the hope was that, you know, if the flagellants perform the ceremony here, plague won't come. So that's why they were very popular, why they were welcomed with open arms by people. And uh, it was, instead of being, um, you know, uh, uh, preaching the end of the world, they were preaching salvation. You know, we're going to save you from the from the death, from the black death. So uh, that was the hope. 
Um, so, you know, it was actually a very hopeful message rather than a message of doom and the end of the world. So, uh, you know, that's why the flagellants were so popular. And, you know, that's very contrary to the popular image. They also, uh, what's interesting about the flagellants too, is that they had a, a rule for, for each company. Each company had a rule to live by. For example, um, you know, people had to get permission of a priest in order to join the flagellants. Um, and they had to uh, pledge to be part of the company for 33 and a half days, as I mentioned. They, they couldn't whip themselves to the point of death and so on and so on. So they had all these rules. And, and it seems clear that the idea was that this would become a, a kind of confraternity or a kind of monastic order that perhaps would live on beyond the Black Death. But of course, it was all shut down by the Pope on October 20th of 1349 when he suppressed the flagellants. And that was basically the end of the movement. Speaking of kind of interesting phenomena, uh, I don't really know if this is true, but I remember reading somewhere that Poland was kind of the only country in Europe that was almost completely bypassed by the Black Death. And that's because for some reason, there were a lot of stray cats there. And, and that kept the population of rats at a minimum. Is that some sort of an urban legend? Or does it yeah. contain a, a grain of... Tr- okay. Yeah, I don't think there's any truth to that. But, you know, I've seen that argument before that, um, you know, Poland was bypassed by the plague. And, and uh, it was said that the low countries were lightly touched by the plague as well. But, um, you know, that's part of the problem of, of the evidence. Just because there's a lack of evidence doesn't mean it didn't occur. It's the saying, um, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. You know, uh, just because you have no evidence of people dying does not mean that plague didn't come there. And I, I have seen a recent argument that the environmental factors um, weren't um, conducive to plague in Poland. Uh, But, you know, again, um, you know, that's, uh, I think that's hard to prove that, you know, just because there's no evidence of something happening doesn't mean that it didn't take place. So I think that's a pretty shaky argument to say, well, there's no evidence that plague came to Poland, um, therefore plague didn't come there. But uh, in terms of trade, well, I mean, if you look at England, uh, you know, as I said, the most records come from England about mortalities during the Black Death. And it's pretty clear that everywhere in England was affected, even very isolated places in the north of England, for example, uh, were, were impacted by the plague and had high mortalities. So, you know, you compare that to Poland, you know, perhaps, um, you know, it was more isolated than other regions, but that doesn't mean it wasn't, it was spared the Black Death. I mean, if it was, I think what what is, um, what's pretty clear is that leading up to the Black Death, um, pretty much all of Europe was being interconnected by trade networks, especially trade in grain. Uh, almost everywhere needed imports of grain or was exporting grain. So, um you know, agriculture was becoming more specialized at this time, uh, and cities had to be supplied from the countryside. Uh, so there was a lot of, of trade going on 
and a lot of interconnectedness um, in terms of that trade. So I, I think it's very hard to say that, well, you know, one place like Poland had trade caps or, you know, was limited in its trade. It's really hard to tell. And I think it would be dangerous to assume that. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's not likely that, that, that this happened yeah. at all. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, as I said, if you look at, at one country, England, which has the most records, even isolated places that, you know, had limited trade access, were still impacted by the Black Death and were, you know, very high mortalities. When do these kind of odd-looking witch doctors appear? You know, with the mask and the <laughs> yeah. beak, something that looks like Stanley Kubrick invented it, like, you know, the right. Eyes Wide Shut party or something. Yeah, where does that come from? That, that comes from the 17th century. Uh, that first emerges, that that, that play costume, right? Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. the beak mask. Uh, the purpose of that mask, by the way, was not to uh, act as a as a, uh, a mask today, as a ventilator. The purpose of the mask was that you stuff um, sweet-smelling herbs into the beak of the mask, and those sweet-smelling herbs could ward off the stench of the of the plague, uh, could ward off the the bad air or corrupt air that was spreading the plague. So that was the the purpose behind the mask was to uh, provide a receptacle for sweet-smelling herbs. And in the Middle Ages, the equivalent was a smelling apple, basically, um, you know, a cloth that was stuffed full of herbs and then tied up into an apple shape. And they would smell that in front of their nose to try to walk. So they were just walking around with that at all times? Or how, I mean, okay. Yeah, it was like a holding up a handkerchief or, um, you know, even it could be simple as a rag dipped in vinegar, something uh, that was fragrant that would ward off the bad air in front of your nose. Was that just for the smell or did they actually believe that that was also purifying the air? It was done to ward off the smell pretty much. Um, I, I don't think they had the, the expectation or the concept that it could purify the air in any way. Um, you know, the idea was that the, 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 the sweet smells of the herbs would uh, counteract the, the foul or corrupt air that was spreading the Black Death. We know that during times of upheaval, like the Crusades, for example, anti-Semitism got even worse in medieval Europe, right? So while preparing for this episode, I read that because of their um, hygienic practices, like regularly washing their hands, uh, Jews had a lower rate of infection, which made the majority population even more suspicious. And then they accused them of poisoning the wells, for example. Did Jewish communities have any sort of defense or protection, or were they left completely at the mercy of such violent paranoia and attacks? Yeah, that's an urban myth. Okay. That's a legend uh, that Jews were somehow uh, less susceptible. Uh, in fact, um, some some doctors, some plague doctors commented that, uh, you know, and the Jews themselves commented that they were, in fact, more susceptible to the Black Death than Christians because, um, you know, they were under the influence of Saturn, which was an evil planet, which was caused the corruption in the air uh, through its uh, evil aspect. You know, a, a lot of other commentators, including the Pope, pointed out that Jews were dying in equal numbers to Christians. Um, so the the idea of washing the hands, they didn't really have a concept of hygiene in that way. Um, 
you know, many plague doctors advise washing the hands with vinegar. But the idea behind that was to hold the hands up to the, the, the nose and mouth. And again, that, that odor, that smell would ward off the plague. Um, you know, they didn't have a concept of, um, you know, uh, screening out germs or anything like that. Or, you know, as you said, filtering out germs. They didn't have a concept of that. And getting back to, you know, the, the Jewish pogroms during the Black Death, I mean, it's estimated that about 400 towns in the German kingdom were um, affected, had uh, uh, attacks upon the Jews by Christians who were accused, as you said, of poisoning wells and therefore trying to give the plague to Christians. And this goes back to my point about the poison thesis that medieval doctors came up, came up with to explain the plague. You know, this was a, a, a scientific or rational explanation. You know, people were believed, it was ex- believed, uh, even by um, the, scienti- the so-called scientific community of the time, that play- people could be poisoned uh, by the Black Death, um, and this would occur naturally in, in medieval doctors' minds by uh, corrupt or poisoned air that was spreading the disease uh, from community to community. But in the case of the Jews, it was believed this was artificial, that you know humans were deliberately poisoning the, the water. And in fact, one, one doctor, Alfonso de Cordoba, gave a whole elaborate explanation of how one could even poison the air by brewing a special formula in a glass amphora and then breaking that amphora against some stones. And then the vapors would spread the plague to the city uh, you wanted to infect. So, um, you know, it was a very small step from natural poisoning to artificial or man-made poisoning if you believe plague is, is spread by poisons. So, um, you know, this sort of provides some of the context about why people blame the Jews, because this seemed to be a a perfectly rational or reasonable explanation that, you know, people could be poisoned um, and get the plague that way. And of course, the, the, the Jews were naturally suspected by Christians because they were believed to be the ones who betrayed Christ to Pontius Pilate. Uh, which resulted in his crucifixion, and that they were the the, the enemies of Christianity. So um, uh, they were the natural suspects. But I should point out that you know other people besides Jews were accused of being poisoners. Um, you know the actual the, the first incident of a plague poison accus- accusation emerged in southern France in Carcassonne and uh, Narbonne in France, and um, uh, it was said that poor poor men and beggars were supposedly spreading the plague in the waters and the foodstuffs and the churches and marketplaces of the town and, and spreading the plague that way. And uh, in fact, uh, even, uh, you know, churchmen um, such as friars or Dominicans who would travel from place to place, they were accused of being poisoners too. Anyone who was a stranger to town could be suspect. But, of course, the Jews were the main suspects in this poison conspiracy. Uh, and, and that, uh, you know, wiped out Jewish communities uh, throughout the German Empire and also in the, in the Savoy, in Switzerland, for example, in southern France and also in Catalonia and Spain.
So these pogroms were deadly. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they typically wiped out the entire Jewish community of the town. And a remarkable piece of evidence has recently emerged. Usually we have chronicle accounts that tell us about these pogroms, but we, we now have also archaeological evidence uh, of these pogroms. In the town of Terrega in, in Catalonia, northeastern Spain, uh, they unearthed a plague pit, uh, which was consisted entirely of victims of a Jewish pogrom that occurred in the town of Terrega on July 6, uh, 1348, when over 300 Jews were killed by a mob that broke into the Jewish quarter of the city, uh, knocked down the gates, and then went in house by house and killed everyone inside. And um, we actually have this plague pit where um, these bodies were buried side by side in this mass burial pit. And uh, the amazing thing is that we, uh, you know, we actually had the, the marks of the attack still remaining on the skeletons of the victims. For example, there was one victim who has no less than 22 lesions to his skeleton, 12 to his skull, and 10 on the rest of his body. He was struck 22 times, in other words. And, uh, you know, what is also very remarkable is how people of all ages were killed. This included men and women, but also children and even infants. You have, you know, skulls where the, um, the you know, the bones have not fused yet, which means they were two years old or less. And, and they also have cuts to the skull. So they were killed. So even infants and children were being killed and struck down during these pogroms. And what that indicates, uh, at least to the scholars who who examined these bones, excuse me, is that, you know, there was a, a remarkable hatred uh, animating these pogroms. They simply wanted to wipe out the entire population of the town, of the, the entire Jewish population of the town. So um, even though there may not be a record of um, the, the, of the fact that, you know, Jews were accused, it seems pretty clear that, um, you know, people believed that Jews were spreading the plague and poisoning people uh, and trying to wipe out the entire Christian community. And therefore, they themselves had to be wiped out in, in, in turn. So, you know, this was a, an, an attempt to um, annihilate the entire community. Did that happen then every time another wave, you know, of the plague kind of hit uh, Europe again? Uh, no, it didn't. Um, what is interesting is that these pogroms, for the most part, occurred before the plague arrived, just like the flagellants. And that was actually remarked upon by a contemporary, uh, Conrad of Megenberg, who was a, a German priest at the Papal Court of Avignon. And he remarked uh, about how even after they, they wiped out all the Jews of the town, the plague still came. And so that was a reason to doubt that the Jews were trying to poison people and give them the Black Death because, you know, even after you wipe out all the people, all the Jews, plague still came. So, uh, therefore, <clears throat> in later outbreaks, um, you know, Jews weren't targeted. Um, you could be also cynical and say, well, there weren't any Jews left. Uh, but, you know, um, in many cases, Jews did come back 
to a lot of these communities after the first uh, outbreak. But they, they weren't targeted in later outbreaks because, you know, killing the Jewish communities didn't, didn't, avoid, didn't avoid the uh, plague coming to the town. After a few years, the Black Death, during this first wave, um, the Black Death pretty much burns out, right? What does the world into which these survivors reemerge into look like? After the first outbreak, you know, there is, there is some recovery, um, but basically Europe is not allowed to fully recover from the Black Death because plague keeps coming back. About once a decade, it comes back in 1361 and 1369, during the 1370s and so on. Um, and then, you know, basically it comes back once a decade. Uh, throughout the second half of the 14th and 15th centuries. So plague never really goes away. So basically, population uh, remains stagnant or even slightly declines right at, right through to the um, mid-15th century. Are there any obvious parallels between the Black Death and the COVID-19 epidemic of our times that immediately come to mind? For most of the you know, epidemic, we seemed pretty powerless and, and our only measures of defense were the quarantine and, and to wash our hands. So the situation doesn't seem too dissimilar, at least, you know, until we have vaccines. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it is interesting that um, in the early days of COVID, the, the best that, you know, people could do was to nurse people. You know, we didn't have we didn't have a cure for COVID, of course. We we didn't even have the vaccines for COVID. So the best thing that people could do was to, uh, you know, simply nurse them through the fever. You know, that was very similar to the Black Death as well. I mean, the, the best that people could do medically was to give them food and water to sustain them in the hopes that they could survive bubonic plague, which they had a chance to do. But I think the, you know, there's a similarity there in terms of um, medically, we were pretty helpless in the face of COVID. But of course, a big difference is that, you know, we developed vaccines in a record period of time uh, that were were able to um, be pretty effective in terms of combating the disease. So um, what is remarkable to me is that, um, the vaccine deniers or the vaccine skeptics refuse to benefit from modern medicine. I mean, it's as if you're deciding to live in the Middle Ages. I mean, why would you do that? Uh, it was it was pretty horrible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's a good question. Nowadays, we have, of course, antibiotics that can cure the plague. So it's as if you're refusing to take that. So, I mean, do you really want to live in the Middle Ages? Some variants were 100%, right? Yeah, some were 100%, you know, in pneumonic or septicemic plague. If you get pneumonic plague, you have to take the antibiotics in the first 24 hours if you're going to survive. You know, it, can, it usually takes about two days to die from pneumonic plague. But in, in bubonic plague, and there's still about a dozen cases of plague that emerge in the, in the Western United States even today because plague is endemic to that region. It's always present, for example, in prairie dog populations and, and other wild animal populations. So, um, you know, it's as if you're saying, I, I don't want to take modern medicine. Uh, I'd rather live in the Middle Ages and, 
you know, I'm an, I'm an historian of the Middle Ages, and even I wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> so after all we've heard today during this episode, that's a very brave choice indeed. Yeah, I mean, there are many comparisons you can make between COVID and the Black Death. You know, there was one interesting comparison I would make is that there were so-called COVID refugees, people who fled COVID from the cities um, and were going to uh, trying to buy country homes or, you know, houses in the country. Uh, many people came to Vermont, for example, where I live, which is, you know, relative, you know, sparsely populated compared to the cities uh, in New York City, for example. And there was some resentment in some communities um, to these new arrivals um, who were thought to be perhaps bringing the disease. But, you know, COVID is spread person to person, uh, which is different from the Black Death, although people at, at the time believed it was spread person to person too. Um, but there's also, uh, in the early stages of COVID, he had the spectacle of mass burials, for example, uh, people being buried so many people dying, they were buried in mass graves, for example. Um, there were, um, you know, people, uh, makeshift morgues being set up where people were put into refrigerated trucks because people were dying uh, at such a high rate. And, um, you know, you, you could compare that uh, to the Black Death and to the 1918 flu pandemic when Bodies were stacked like cordwood, like firewood, it was said. Yeah, we didn't touch upon that. If we may quickly uh, jump back, how did people get buried? Who did that? Yeah, typically, people were um, buried in a shroud, which is basically a, a cloth sack. And they were put into a, you know, a grave dug in the ground. And then uh, after a while, the bones were dug up and it was the bones were placed in a ossuary or basically a charnel house, uh, a place to stack bones, and and the grave was reused. So people didn't really have individual graves back then. Um, during the time of the Black Death, when so many people were dying, of course, there were mass graves that were dug. And uh, Giovanni Boccaccio has a famous account of how the bodies were stacked, you know, uh, layer upon layer, like, uh, ship's cargo. Uh, Marchione de Coppa Stefani, another Florentine chronicler, compared it to making lasagna out of layers of pasta and, che and cheese. You have a layer of bodies, then a layer of dirt, a layer of bodies, a layer of dirt, and the people were just stacked up. That used to be my favorite dish, but uh, after this <laughs> conversation, I yeah, I'm that sorry, that's gonna happen. I'm sorry, yeah, I ruined okay. it for you. <laughs> but you, they didn't yeah. have tomato. They didn't have tomato sauce back then, so um, you know. Tomatoes were an import from the New World only in the early modern period. So that can be different. But in, in any case, uh, you know, you had these mass burials, these mass graves. And, and so certainly it did change uh, the way people were buried and the way people uh, viewed death. I mean, the scariest thing about the Black Death for medieval people, I believe, was it, it was so sudden. Uh, it, it could come without warning. And therefore, you had little time to prepare for death. One of the comforts medieval people had was a ritual of death, where a priest would come in, would show you the crucifix, and do the last rites for you. You would make confession of your sin. You would see, receive the sacrament or the Eucharist, 
and then you receive the anointing or, uh, you know, the anointing of oil on your forehead, which is, you know, extreme unction, it was called. So anyway, you had this whole ritual, but that's all upended by the Black Death because, you know, for one thing, there might not be a priest available. So many priests were dying from the plague themselves. Also, plague could come so suddenly that people didn't have time to prepare for death like that. So there's, uh, you know, a fear of being unshriven or, you know, un, uh, not receiving the last last rites, as well as a fear of being abandoned and a fear of being forgotten. Uh, this is part of the reason why people begin to have the portraits made because they want to be remembered. They don't want to be forgotten. They, you know, they don't want uh, uh, to simply die all alone with no one to remember them. So it's one of the interesting things is how part of the reason why the Renaissance emerges at this time is because people want their individual portraits painted so that they won't be forgotten in the time of mass death. So uh, culturally speaking, I believe COVID will affect our society. It's still playing out, of course, and we'll see how it does. But, um, you know, it has affected the way society behaves. For example, I don't go to the movie theater anymore. And uh, we used to do contra dancing, which is dancing in a line of people. Uh, but we don't do that anymore. So there's a lot of, a lot of you know, cultural changes that are made um, because of the disease. And, uh, you know, the Black Death was, was no different. You know, it had a tremendous impact on society. You know, in, in a sense, I think it um, it had some positive impacts because of the higher wages that we mentioned. You know, the people had a higher standard of living. But in another sense, it also made death more uh, omnipresent or more prevalent. And, um, uh, you know, people uh, wanted to uh, adjust for that. And preparations for death became more important. This is why uh, so many people want masses said for their souls, uh, you know, prayers for the dead. You know, this is what leads to the Reformation, of course. You know, that uh, <laughs> Martin Luther was complaining about this, that, you know, people are simply having prayers said, indulgences for their, for their souls. They're buying indulgences, but they're not really, uh, you know, uh, thinking about what, you know, what is the meaning behind it? So, you know, this uh, this sort of leads to a lot of changes, I believe, eventually it changes in society. And uh, Renaissance and the Reformation are the two biggest ones that come to my mind. But yeah, I, I certainly think the Black Death contributed to those. On a personal level, um, how do you deal with the dark irony of the fact that... Um, you dedicated, you know, a, a big portion of your of your life and scholarly work to this famous epidemic, and then you lived through one. Now, is it ever kind of on your mind, or not really? Uh, why am I such a morbid person? Is it what you were asking? I guess <laughs> no, <laughs> not necessarily. No, <laughs> but uh, I, I take your your question. But yeah, I mean, why am I so fascinated by death? Part of it is personal to me. Um, you know, I I have a, a lung condition which. Um, you know, I was born with, and uh, I had an operation when I was five years old, where um, I had what's called a a bilateral lobectomy. That means they cut out a part of my lungs, 
that was infected. And uh, that was when I was five. So I was, you know, faced with the real prospect of death from an early age. And that stayed with me throughout childhood. So I've always been fascinated, in a sense, by death because, because I came so close to it. And, um, you know, the, the fact that a whole, you know, generation of people were faced with, you know, death, uh, 50% mortality, death everywhere, you know, uh, is bound to attract me. It was bound to fascinate me and how they dealt with it. And one of the, you know, one of the things that I take away from my studies of the Black Death is this, you know, so-called silver lining or the, you know, the um, hopeful message that comes out of a study of the Black Death. I mean, it may seem morbid, but society survived. You know, that's the fact. You know, society survived and, in fact, reinvented itself in the Renaissance, in the Reformation. Um, It actually came out stronger, you could say, and from the experience that, yeah, there was this massive die-off and this massive, um, you know, threat to civilization. You can easily believe, if you lived through it, that the end of the world was coming, that um, everyone was going to die. But in, in fact, um, you know, society comes out with a cultural renewal and uh, a lot of people are a lot better off, economically at least. But, you know, of course, psychologically and socially, you know, that may not be the case. But society survived and I think that's a hopeful message for us. I mean, COVID has a death rate of 1% or less. So it is not nearly as impactful in that sense as the Black Death. You know, one of the things that I take away from it is that modern medicine is a gift. I mean, you look at the time of the Black Death, they didn't really, you know, they the uh, doctors were, you know, I'm sure convinced of their remedies and that they were working, but they didn't work. You know, and some of them were actually counterproductive, like bleeding, for example. Um, so, you know, <laughs> they didn't really have a medical response to the Black Death. They, they came up with a new theory, the poison thesis, uh, and that, you know, emphasized different remedies like, you know, theriac or drug remedies. But, you know, it didn't really impact the way, you know, how people survived, that people could survive the plague. So we should be grateful that we have vac- vaccines and, um, you know, effective responses to disease nowadays, um, you know, contact tracing. Um, testing, all the rest of it, uh, you know, information sharing. Uh, this is all, um, you know, things that we, we need to cherish and nurture and, and not deny or <laughs> be skeptical about. I mean, that's just crazy. In my, in my, in my view, that's a, a suicide impulse by society and by certain people, individuals who, who deny vaccines or deny uh, or skeptical of vaccines, they, they, they simply have a suicide impulse. They want to kill themselves or kill society. You have to decide whether you want to survive or not. And that's the most fundamental question you can ask yourself, you know, to be or not to be. Let's say be. <laughs> yeah. For now, at least. Yeah. That's, that's the lesson of the Black Death. I mean, society did survive, but it took quite a toll. And, um, you know, do you want to survive or not? I mean, we have the blessings of modern medicine let's let's use it yeah i i completely agree i'm glad we're kind of concluding 
this uh, this this episode on a hopeful message but before i let you go yeah in order to stay true to the name of this podcast i have to ask you something a bit more trashy let's say you're walking around vermont and you suddenly fall into a portal that drops you in the middle of london at the height of the black death you don't have any modern medicine or gadgets with you what do you professor abeth do to maximize your chances of survival that's a good question I assume that I have my modern awareness. You do, yeah. Well, I would I would know, for example, that plague is primarily spread by rats and fleas. So I would focus on, you know, my um, my personal hygiene. Although I, I have to emphasize that the the environment of the Middle Ages was a lot different than it is today. So that's one thing you're fighting against because, uh, you know, they actually did studies in the third pandemic at the turn of the century of of mud huts or houses in Egypt and Bombay, Mumbai, India, rather. Um, and these are, of course, very similar to the houses of the Middle Ages that would have existed. And they, they actually found that, for example, in one plague, in, in, in a typical plague-infested mud hut, there were on average 120 fleas. 120 infected fleas in each hut. And in some cases, there were, there was, in one case, there was as many as 2,843 fleas. But I, I'm not going to let you off the hook that easily. What would you do? Would you just run to the countryside as fast as your legs carry you? Or I, I know I, I know I wouldn't enter into a home. I, I wouldn't enter into a house because, you know, the, the rats are commensural. That means they live in proximity to humans. So they typically burrow into the walls or the roofs of these houses. So I, I probably, um, I don't know, I might become a flagellant because then I could <laughs> live out in the open air. You know, the flagellants would travel from town to town and they would stay out in the open, camp, basically camp out. That's a very unexpected answer. But they might, they, you know, when they came to a town, they uh, typically would be offered accommodation by people who came up to them and wanted to host flagellants. I would refuse that hospitality. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, you know, they had the right idea camping out in the open, um, you know, staying away from medieval housing, which is basically a death trap. Uh, I mean, it's filled with hundreds of infected fleas if it's infected by plague. So forget about it. Um, you know, I, I would try to, you know, camp out in the open as much as possible. And, uh, you know, basically... Um, it's not so much avoiding the company of people because plague wasn't primarily spread that way. So that wouldn't be a problem. It's, it's staying away from the rats and their fleas. And that's, you know, that's what you had to be concerned with. So that's why I would avoid dwellings as much as possible. I know we're talking about a really horrible period in history, but your answer sounds kind of oddly romantic in a way. <laughs> Bohemian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, uh, it's sort of going back to an elemental style living, back to nature, if you will. Professor Aberth, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, this thank was an you. Absolute pleasure from start to finish. I really hope we'll do a repeat sometime in the future if you'll have time, of course. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, also, if our audience would like to check out one of your many books, I think you you said at the beginning you wrote ten. Which one would you recommend the most, and where where can they get it? I recommend the, uh, the 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 latest book I came out with called The Black Death. It's simply called The Black Death, A New History of the Great Mortality in Europe. 
It's published by Oxford University Press. Um, you can find it on Amazon.com, but it's it's only $24, product of seven years of research. But uh, it's very readable, very accessible. Um, I cover all aspects of the disease. So it's the best introduction to the Black Death. And uh, it certainly updates a lot of the scholarship on the plague. Um, you know, the last real general book was Philip Zeigler's The Black Death, and that came out in 1969. So it really updates uh, a lot of the research and our, our new knowledge about the disease. So that, that's the best introduction that I can recommend. Uh, Professor Aberth, thanks again. Thank you.